HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Sally, coming to you live every Thursday, 4 p.m. for Greenhorn Radio. I am thrilled to be here with you and joined on the phone today by Jude Becker in Iowa. Jude, are you there? I am here, Severin. Hey, Jude, make sure you keep talking really loud so we can hear each other. Okay. Welcome on the show. Nice to have you here. And thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. So tell me, Jude, would you mind telling our audience a little bit about who you are and where you are and, and what you raise? Um, I am a farmer from Iowa, and we are producing uh, organic pork, uh, my sixth-generation farm uh, near Dyersville, Iowa. And we organic for us simply means that the pigs are living outdoors, and they are eating a diet of organic grain and being fed without the use of antibiotics. And we also follow a fairly strict regimen of animal welfare protocols that prohibit practices like tail docking and teeth cutting and have a lot to do with the space requirements so that it kind of sets us apart from more traditional indoor farms. Oh, I'm sorry. Sometimes when I can't hear you, then I just start talking. This is... This is this is then um, pork that um, that even Willie Nelson would approve of. That's right. That's right. I think he would be a great proponent of the uh, pork we're producing. Um, tell me, were you were you raised as an organic pork producer, or is this something that you found um, on your own? Um, I was raised on a traditional pig farm in Iowa that was not certified organic, but we were very much contrarians in the sense that. We were producing pigs uh, without subscribing to the modern confinement systems and not using antibiotics. And so when I went to Iowa State University and sort of sought a career path, uh, organic uh, livestock production seemed like a very viable option. Uh, although, although in its infancy at the time, we um, converted our farm to become officially certified organic and so it's it's something I've I've learned over the last let's say ten years. And so so we know that um, the demand for local food and and food that has got less miles and chemicals and pain associated with it has a growing market in New York City and in San Francisco. Um, but what would be the challenges for someone who isn't quite so close into those um, ready markets for pastured pork products. Um, well, that's a great tell me, question. Tell me, tell me what the food chain looks like from your end. That's a that's a great question. Um, 
we, we really try to find ways to, to connect with consumers that share our philosophy. So although not everyone lives in a great or greater metropolitan area, um, our website, BeckerLaneOrganic.com, offers um, shipping options for people who wish to, to share in our, our meat but don't, don't live in such a great area. But you've outlined a, a great challenge to the local uh, livestock producer movement in, in the United States, and that being uh, just, just the shipping of, of these products. And it raises so many, so many questions about um, the use of fossil fuels and, and associated food miles. And so I don't claim to have all the answers for those questions, but, but definitely we're, we're searching for, for as many options as possible for consumers anywhere who want to share in our meat products. Um, t- well, you have, you have potentially, I think, some local eaters there. I mean, there are some people who do live in Iowa, even though um, the population density isn't quite as high as it is in other places. And, and do you have local processing facilities? Tell us we about are, those. Yeah, we are fortunate. There are some, some uh, restaurants in, in Iowa and Illinois who buy pork from our farm. But on the processing end, we're actually quite fortunate. There are several uh, scaled and organized slaughter plants near my farm, which gives me great, great flexibility and, and many options for harvesting animals, breaking the carcasses down in a humane fashion, and achieving um, balanced use of the carcass. So in other words, we can, we can break, a, a, let's say, a pig, in my case, down into the, the primals, and, which are the loin and, and the uh, shoulders. And uh, because of these processing plants and their shipping options, we can send, send away parts like the, the back legs, which you may know as ham, to, um, for example, a company called La Quercia, who does a great, great job making prosciutto. Uh, and they're also located in Iowa. So Iowa is sort of the center of the meat universe, as it were. So that's, although we aren't located immediately next to a great, great metropolitan area, we're, we are located sort of in the center of the meat, meat universe, so we can uh, enjoy the options that these processing facilities give our farm. Okay, so before we get too excited about how great um, all this work is that we're that we're seeing on all these beautiful young farmer farms around America. Tell me what the um, center of the meat universe looks like on the on the darker side of things. Well, that's, that's a good uh, good question. Uh, I'm definitely, as I said, a kind of a contrarian, and the, the neighborhoods, you know, the neighborhoods around me and my neighborhood are are largely dominated by uh, farmers who are either producing uh, commodity corn that depends so much on fossil fuel derived fertilizers and m- most of that corn is being being fed to either either pigs or uh feedlot beef on some rather large uh you may say industrial industrial uh confinement uh animal factory operations uh near me so I do I do tend to cause a, a bit of a, a bit of a ruckus in in na- in the neighborhood when people see pigs roaming around outdoors and I, I I get a few comments from 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 the neighborhood, you know, wondering why someone who's young like me is is going back to the way it was done 50 years ago, and that it, it seems rather backward to them. But but I think it's it's not it's not only a throwback approach. It's maybe you could use the word postmodernism because we are using some old-fashioned ideas, but I think they're they're very sound ideas. 
Uh, and along with those ideas, we're, we're using a very modern marketing system to, to uh, get our story out to people who share our philosophy. Well, I mean, this is the thing is, you know, some of those commodity guys, they use, like, GPS and lasers, which is, you know, real high tech. But it seems like the, um, the social engagement and the communication, the sophistication of farm design that young farmers are employing um, in their business structures are, in fact, potentially much more um, kind of refined technologies, you know, than, than the lasers and the glyphosate. Right. I think it's, it's important that a farmer never becomes a tool of his tools. So although it, although it may seem, uh, you know, really high-tech, as you said, to have, you know, GPS-driven uh, combines and tractors, um, those, those tools actually do much more for the, the designers uh, of those, those machines, such as the companies that engineer them or, or for example, the Roundup-ready uh, genes that are in our, our grain crops do a lot more benefit for Monsanto than they do for any of the farmers. And so I think uh, the system I have is, is, uh, is smart. If you can't say high-tech, it's very smart, at least in a way that benefits farmers. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about how, um, how raising pastured pork is of benefit to you and your um, lifestyle. Describe for us, if you will, the conditions of your day and um, how much, how much um, what, you're, what are you doing every day? Well, uh, my day at the farm starts very early. Um, typically on, on long days, we try to get ahead of the heat. So we, we do chores maybe starting at 5.30 a.m. And I have uh, four people on the farm helping me because we have uh, over 500 sows at my farm. Um, so they're in several pasture fields over, spread over about 400 acres. And we begin, begin the routine in, in, the, in the morning by feeding all, all of our sows uh, a mixture of corn and soybeans and minerals uh, in our pastures. And following that, we work through our farrowing department, and that just means the area where the baby piglets are. Um, and then we have every day a routine for breeding. So we divide our work schedule in 21 days, uh, and in each of those 21 days, a group of sows goes through its sort of through its paces, and that that means uh, breeding the breeding all the all the females or the sows and uh, some of those sows are giving birth and some of the sows are having their litters of piglets weaned away from them. So there's a, a fairly strict routine that we go through uh, to make each day, each day sort of as productive as possible. Tell me, what kind of pigs are you raising? And, and, and describe, if you would, what is the character of a pig for those of us who are not? I am recently acquainted with pigs because I have now two of my own pastured pigs, but um, I'm very much enjoying getting to know the, the character of the pig, and I think some of our radio listeners may as well. Well, I think if you have been hanging around with pigs, you'll know that a pig is probably the only animal that looks at you as an equal, whereas you could say cats look down on people and dogs look up to us. Pigs look at us as though we're uh, equal companions, and I think that's fascinating, and it's a fascinating backdrop for all of the uh, ethics and morality of, of livestock keeping. 
Um, but, the, but the specific pigs we have on our farm are Berkshire and Chester White breeds. And the Berkshire breed, as, as you or, or listeners may know, is, is sort of revered throughout the, the last few centuries for its great meat quality and uh, hardiness. The Chester White breed may be a bit more uh, obscure. It's another heritage breed of pigs. It's completely white, but it's very strong-boned, and so it's also very hardy. And we've chosen Chester White sows to become our mothers to make up the, the sow herd. Uh, and our, our boars are Berkshires. And so the resulting pigs that we choose to grow and harvest for meat are 50% Chester White and 50% Berkshire. So those are English pigs. Originally, pig, yes. Tell us they, a little bit, if you can, about the history of the domestic of pig. Because it seems like in America, many, many of the pigs that we're raising are English pigs, also of the cattle that we're raising. But right, the history that, goes a lot right. further than that. Right, you're right. The most, most pigs are uh, come from lines of genetics uh, that go straight back to England. So, yes. Can, can you hear me when I'm saying, do you know a little bit about the early domestication of the pig? Because I think that there's something about a wild boar from Eurasia crossing with a wild boar from, hmm, I've forgotten about that. Uh, I do know, I don't know very much about it, but I'm, I'm sure you're right. Well, we need to do some research. We're going to get back to this pig issue in the next episode, but for the meantime, I'm going to go and make sure some some research happens. Apparently there's a wonderful book called Pig Perfect that has much description of such issues. So for those of you who are interested in doing some piggy research, that may be a good place to start, and, and I, will, um, I will make sure we get back to the provenance of the pig in a later episode. Tell me, um, Jude, tell me about your marketing uh, savvy and, and, and what you've learned, like what you're doing now and, and kind of how you got there. Well, at the moment, we are uh, selling our pork to restaurants, primarily uh, in California, uh, also Chicago. And these are restaurants that we feel share our philosophy. And I have gotten to this point of directly dealing with with chefs at these restaurants uh, after a number of years of trial and error with various distributors. And I think... Uh, the food chain uh, that I want to participate in is, is, is working best when there's as few middlemen as possible. So making, a, as I said before, a pathway that connects the farmer and his philosophies and his, his worldview and his way of producing food to a, a given consumer or chef who shares those philosophies. And just getting rid of all that middle nonsense, it just makes the most sense for us. And I think it offers people the most value, especially in these uh, rather arduous economic times. So it's taken me a number of years. Uh, initially, we, you know, as I said, worked with distributors, but we found they, they, didn't, they didn't have the initiative to, uh, or the, the true desire or the incentive to work with a small farmer. And they really just wanted to, to sort of play price games with us. And over time, we got connections with, with restaurants and chefs uh, who, 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 sh who were, were artisans like us and not just corporate middlemen. And so I, to make all that work from my farm in Iowa, 
I have a, a great helper in, uh, for example, our, our helper Julie in California, and Julie is in charge each week of, of collecting orders from, from all the restaurants that want to uh, get pork for their menu of that week. And what, we have a, a cutoff deadline, and as soon as I receive the, uh, the uh, pork orders from each restaurant via Julie, I decide how many animals we're going to harvest that week, and we set up a, a slaughter date at my slaughterhouse. And we take those pigs to be, to be slaughtered and processed, and we ship the pork, uh, um, and we actually share shipping with another uh, group of, of uh, natural pork producers to make it more economic and try to minimize the, the carbon footprint of our food miles. And so it takes about seven days from the time the chef may place an order until they receive their pork. And that's that's sort, of, sort of the gist of how we're, we're marketing our pork at, at the moment. Sounds like job creation to me. Sounds like young farmers are an engine of economic growth, both within and um, between these areas of production and consumption. <laughs> Sorry, right. I'm making a joke. But right, I right. want to come back um, with some very important other things to talk about. After our slightly small break, we have to take a radio station break. And we'll return back with more with Jude Becker and Severn of the Greenhorns Radio Station. Talk to you in a second. Back with Greenhorn Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. I'm joined today on the telephone by, with Jude in Iowa. Jude Becker raises pastured pork products for markets around the country. He is a sixth-generation um, farmer and advocate for sustainable ag and animal welfare practices. Jude, I wanted to talk to you about the, um, the real politique of, of entry for other young farmers in the pork sector. Um, I talked a little bit with um, Paul Willis about how young farmers might best join um, the ranks of the professionally the professionally um, the professional farmers, and um, he made the point to me that if you want to get started uh, in factory pork production, there's no there's not such a good likelihood that you'll be able to raise the capital to build um, a half million dollar concrete facility and raise confinement pigs, but that with pastured pigs, um, the investment in the startup capital is significantly lower, and you can kind of organically grow your, grow your herd and grow your operation um, and, of course, have healthier, healthier um, pigs. Tell me, tell me what your insights might be about um, the role that your family's land and existing infrastructure played in your business and, and how other people might expect. Sure. Um, to succeed or struggle in the pork business. Sure. Well, it's it's true that the amount of capital it takes to 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 start an operation like mine is much less, and I think 
even more important than the amount of capital it takes is the fact that it's possible to start small and grow your business over time. So in my case, this is our 11th, well, maybe it's our 12th year of producing pastured organic pigs. And we've grown my farm from a beginning of six uh, female gilts and one Berkshire boar in 1999 um, to what it is today. And we've, we began small and we didn't know very much, uh, and, but that was okay because, because of the, the labor I, I put forward to, to create some um, wooden huts that sat in my pasture and offered shelter for the animals and some of the other secondhand equipment I, I purchased initially that didn't take a lot of capital. It offered me a small beginning, and of course, I, I couldn't make a living doing that. But over time, we we gained in knowledge and, and gained in in the number of animals we could produce, and we found more supporters and more customers, and we we grew our business. And so, uh, I'm sure that would be completely impossible in in the modern uh, corporate workings of industrial agriculture. So, for example, you know, as as Paul mentioned or alluded to, it it, it takes. I'm sure it could take multiple millions of dollars to, to construct a modern CAFO if, if someone wanted to, to build such a thing, which I don't. But uh, and So definitely uh, it's, it's very true that it takes less capital and, uh, and you can begin small and grow as you learn. And, and, and it does help, it seems, also then if you are going to start small and you're going to work your way up. Um, into a kind of a business that will support you and sustain you as you as you build a family. That starting young has benefits not only in in terms of the courage that you have when you're a young person to take on the impossible, but also um, that you have much lesser economic needs when you're a young person and you have more of that sweat sweat equity on your side of of the physical equation. Because in the beginning, you must have been working pretty hard getting all the fences in and and getting your operation dialed. It's it's true. I, I think for the first first two years, I I took very very few days off of off of uh, the uh, the routine on the farm, and I didn't have anyone helping me. And I can remember when we were big enough to have uh, our first full time employee, how how much of a, an accomplishment it, it it seemed to be. And I think it was because that was sort of you know an indicator that we were we were becoming more substantial and more more uh getting more traction it it seems like um although although getting started in farming is always a bootstrap bootstrap operation um i mean getting started in any business um requires a certain amount of a certain amount of a certain amount of toiling that um the support hasn't necessarily been there um from government institutions um from from the government basically to help with the especially the startup loans that are needed. But recently we've seen a big turnaround, and there are um, this is for you you young farmers listening now. There are quite a few programs out there which will help you with that startup capital. Um, and I just thought I would quickly mention a few. One of one of the programs that I've just recently heard about is the Animal Welfare Institute's uh, grant program. They have Five and ten thousand dollar grants um, that they're offering for folks who wanting to do capital improvements on their farms, um, specifically improvements that will help with, you know, moving animals onto pasture or improving the conditions of 
um, the lives of the animals. Those are um, those are um, grants for facilities up, um, upgrades. And there's also now a new USDA um, low-interest loan program, which you can read about on our blog, www.thegreenhorn.wordpress.com. Um, Low-interest loans offered, in many cases, through something called FarmStart, which is a farm credit organization. Um, a few new um, kind of green equity groups are pooling together resources to do um, investment investments um, by um, by kind of green-minded investors in funds, which would then which then move the money um, through farm businesses. Um, again, the example of Hardwick, Vermont, keeps coming up where a kind of consortium of farm businesses loan money to each other. Um, there's a great project in Massachusetts called the Carrot Project that gets money going um, for startup businesses, farm um, um, on-farm processing, etc. Many many other countries recognize the value of um, helping farmers capitalize their um, their businesses and and bring processing uh, into the scale appropriate for that farm and for that that kind of bio um, bioregions agriculture. Um, in Ireland, you can get 50% um, cost sharing from the Department of Agriculture if you're doing on-farm processing of organic products, um, so beer. Um, jam, cheese, etc. All of those food products require a certain amount of infrastructure, and that infrastructure um, is built with the help of, of, of federal monies in those countries. So there is certainly room for us to improve here in America the support that we provide to young entrepreneurs in the agricultural sector, people who are um, serving us food and serving us health, um, serving our soil and our streams, and um, the quality of our children's lives. So, tell me, tell me, Jude, what other programs you know about that are out there to help folks, or or resources that you tapped into in your journey? Well, I also know of some of the programs you mentioned. We were fortunate enough to be a recipient of the Animal Welfare Institute uh, Animal Welfare Grant in 2008. So that that's helped our farm. Uh, I think that if you look at your local uh, USDA uh, farm office, and specifically the NRCS um, has a program called EQIP, which is has a lot of funding right now from the USDA to support organic agriculture, and specifically people wanting to begin or transition land to organic farming. And in that transition, uh, guideline and definition, they have allowances for livestock operations. And I know there's been a, a fair amount of funding given to each state for that, and most people I've spoken with indicate there are very, very few farmers applying. So any, any young farmers out there listening who want to begin or in a certified organic operation uh, should check with their local NRCS office and, and ask about EQIP, which I think could potentially yeah, I just be talked a, to my local NRCS officer recently because my landlord's doing some improvements on his farm that will be of, of um, benefit to kind of the um, aquatic health here in this landscape. So it was a very good experience. They have, I think, they have fifty million dollars helping um, to support the certification costs even of farmers who are 
who are either getting recertified or, or transitioning from conventional um, to organic. One, one issue that I really wanted to make sure we covered um, before we ran out of time is um, the issue of breeding stock. Um, and, and a little bit of your commentary would be appreciated about um, the decline in the quality. Uh, well, maybe just, maybe, I don't want to put the words into your mouth. Tell me, tell me where you found your breeding stock and, and what you found about um, breeds in America today. Uh, that's a great, great uh, issue to, to discuss. The amount of available uh, breeding stock is definitely being reduced, and the number of breeding stock providers, uh, especially for, for pig producers, is very small and shrinking, shrinking more every year. Because in order for a breeding stock farmer, uh, in other words, someone who sells breeding stock, to be, to be viable, they have to have a number of other farmers who, who can support them. And it seems as though the number of independent livestock producers has reached or is nearing a critical mass, uh, going under, under that critical mass. And so I'm very, I'm very fearful about the future in general of some of these uh, breeds of, of, of animals, and especially pigs, and their availability for, for someone who would want to start a, a outdoor or pasture or organic livestock operation. In my case, I was fortunate enough uh, in the year 2000 to um, make a connection with a breeding stock producer in Illinois, and he was a rather elderly gentleman that was in his 80s at the time and, and still trying to keep his, his breed of, or his, his specific line of Chester White breed pigs alive and, and viable. And uh, since, since that time, I've taken ownership of most of his, his, core, his core genetics so that we have the chance at my farm to continue those, those great, hardy, outdoor, um, meat-quality animals. But it's definitely a, a, a great issue of concern, and I think that we, you know, perhaps need to address address the uh, government to, for help because I really am afraid that if we don't uh, see some some uh, revitalization of, of breeding stock farmers, that we'll continue to see a decline in the number of breeds available for for livestock farmers. Sounds like another another point for our policy platform for. Uh Young farmer-friendly farm bill, but would you ever consider being a breeder and 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 providing that service to your to your local area? Well, I think just by default, we we have the possibility of offering several replacement females or or boars uh, for other other farmers um, if if they were to call me and ask uh, and re request that I save back some gilts, which are. Uh, maiden sows or keep keep some boars intact for them, it's possible. But it's definitely not the same scale, and we can't offer the same consistency, consistency as a, um, a full-time uh, re replacement stock farm. Uh, we have actually in the past given or, or sold an, a, a few boars to other small farmers in my area who wanted to, to start their own breeds of Chester White Pigs. So... It's definitely something we've we've uh, dabbled in. Yeah, definitely. In in the same way that the vegetable breeders, um, vegetable seed breeders, it's really a it's a different genius um, breeding seed and, and saving seed and, and watching the plants for their performance in that in that 
in that kind of astral way than it is doing production ag and serving the marketplace. It's, it's often a very different sensibility um, of farmer, you know, different kind of farmer who will who will choose to focus in on the, on those different aspects. So I would say it probably takes all types. Absolutely, all types. Well, we're getting to the end of our of our program, so I wanted to just make sure that you had a chance again to tell your your website and and any um, any little bits of advice that you would offer to someone who's just getting started down this road, or maybe even to me because I only have two pigs. What would you tell me? Um, what um, would you tell me? And 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 also mention some some of those um, web addresses. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll quickly give the web addresses. Uh, my my farm's website is Becker laneorganic.com so it's just the my last name uh, becker and the road we happen to live on is is named becker lane so it's beckerlaneorganic.com yeah, anyway bits of advice for people getting into uh into uh organic or pasture pig production as as i said before uh try to begin small and uh find a find a a market first i often have people calling me up and telling me oh 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 shucks, you know we can't market these these pigs we've we've raised, and and can't you help us? And I, it's it's very difficult to find a, a market for a, a pig weighing 300 pounds that you know should have been marketed two or three weeks or, or even a month ago um, without having any any planning done ahead of time. So definitely look around your area, f- find restaurants that perhaps are have an interest in serving sustainable meat. Or see if there's any cooperative groups that are are practicing in your area uh, before you begin this on any on any sizable economic scale would be my main pointer. The other other thing I, I would say is is uh, don't be afraid to um, look to examples uh, that you may find in Europe. Um, Europe is so far ahead of the United States in in sustainable livestock production. They have done a much better job than us in in getting government uh, assistance and stimulus to help small farmers and find the right practices and practices and methodologies, so don't be afraid to look online and uh, find find research that's been done in Europe or even as I did, just get on a plane and and you know tour tour the countryside of Denmark or England and you'll you'll see a lot of small uh, country farm shop um, retail settings that farmers are doing uh, innovative things at and ask ask questions and make, make connections and you may learn a lot and to all those eaters out there keep eating pigs and we'll keep raising them and uh, another point is Benjamin Franklin who was one of our leading leading leaders of early times he said every fo- every farm can afford at least one pig and no farm can afford none so if you're farming out there somewhere and you're listening to this show Heed the words of our of our um, of our ancestors and forefathers, and get yourself a pig. Thanks so much, Jude, for joining us. Please stay in touch with us in the Greenhorns. www.thegreenhorns.net. Come visit our blog. Come listen to past shows and future ones. And thanks so much for joining us. Bye bye. Thanks, Severin.